turn to the book of Acts. We're going to start in the book of Acts. And uh, I'd like to go through this book, and I've, I, I was reminded that it is indefinitely a, a long book, but I think it would encourage us and teach us how uh, God built the church, how Christ is building the church. Uh, we're going to start this by going through verses 1 through 11. And as we go through the book of Acts, we will probably take some breaks. I want to do a series on um, fundamentals of the faith and then perhaps later on do some church distinctives. How does RBC do church? Where do we get these uh, convictions and why do we do certain things certain ways? And we hope to show you that it's from the scriptures why we do certain things certain ways. But before that, we want to start our series in the book of Acts, and we I entitled this sermon, Ready for the Work, and we're going to go from verses 1 through 11, Ready for the Work. But before we start, why don't we pray? Father in heaven, we are just grateful, grateful that we can come to you, grateful that uh, you have called us, you have saved us, you have changed us. You are definitely and indeed a true and great God. And we pray, Father, that your word would once again show us this, reveal Christ to us in the scriptures. We pray, Father, that you would warm the hearts of believers. You would save those who don't know you. Would you do your mighty work? Soften, convict, teach by your Holy Spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I, I oftentimes like to go to, say, if we're at the pier, or sometimes we go at the, the Thursday night summit, uh, sunset market, oftentimes you see a lot of folks, a lot of folks. I remember when I was at a train station, even in uh, South, Southern Asia, and people are getting packed into this dirty, filthy train station. And I just remember just looking at a lot of folks. And God has told us in Matthew 28, he says to go therefore, you go therefore, having gone therefore. He's calling us disciples to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe thy ways. And I, I, sometimes I look at the Great Commission and then I look at the mass of humanity, right? And I said, how, how, God, how are we going to do this? And sometimes I, as you look at the news and anytime someone says anything about sin or unrighteousness and folks just get upset and angry and they start to combat it with nasty words. So I, I'm sometimes thrown aback of, of, of the mass of it all, the immensity of all, the enormity of the work, and then the difficulty of the work. You're preaching to a people who don't want to hear you. You're preaching to a people who want nothing to do with Christ. And we want those people to come to know Jesus Christ. And, you know, to be quite frank, when you look at it, if you look at it just like that, and you look at the work that we have to do, even as, as we're sitting here in Oceanside in this somewhat 
affluent area of, of America, and we sit here and you look at, you see all these scores of people, and you see the hostility to the, to the gospel, you think, how in the world are we, we, we don't have enough techno-savvy we have, we don't, we're not techno-savvy enough, you know what I mean? We, we don't have enough slick appeal. We don't have enough smoke and mirrors. We don't have enough promotional things kind of like that. How are we going to approach this task? And, you know, God, by His Spirit, has revealed to us how He would do it. And I think He wants to encourage you this morning as we look at this text, how he wants to do it. God gave this passage this morning so that you'd be fruitful laborers used of Christ as he builds his church. God gave this passage this morning so that you would be fruitful laborers used of Christ as he builds his church. Notice he says there, the first account I composed Theophilus about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs appearing to them over a period of 40 days speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which, he said, you heard of from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they came together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, in all of Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, King, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you watched him go into heaven. The writer Luke, is, is this is his sequel. He wrote his first book called The Gospel of Luke. And now he's trying to explain to Theophilus, he goes, the first account I composed, he said, uh, the book of Luke that we call the book of Luke, I wrote all the things about the life and ministry and the death and resurrection of Christ. And now I want to give you the sequel. So if you were to read, some people call it, this book actually Luke 2. Right? Because it's the second book. Now, it's, this is what Christ has done. The book of Luke, is, this is what Christ has done as he was born, lived, died, raised, resurrected. And this is what he does now in the church. Now, uh, through, history, through history, this book has been called the Acts of the Apostles. 
But it really is, if we look at this text, and he's going to tie this for us, this is really the acts of Jesus Christ building the church through his Holy Spirit. This is the acts of Christ building the church through the Holy Spirit. It's not that the apostles have in themselves this power. This is actually explicit here in verse 8. It's not that they could depend on themselves. It wasn't their acumen. It wasn't their education. It wasn't their, their uh, eloquence. It was the power of God resting in these men. And that's why we say God gave this passage this morning. So he'd be fruitful laborers, use of Christ, as he builds this church. When God gave this promise, he gives the promise to all who are part of his church. In this text, the writer, Luke, by the Holy Spirit, gives you four reassurances that are available to you in order to be fruitful laborers used of Christ to build his church. There are four reassurances, and the first one is his gospel. So if we were to make it an action point, number one, believe in his gospel. Believe in his gospel. And he starts out in verses 1 to 3. It is such an impression on Luke. It is so important to Luke that even though he explained a whole gospel regarding the gospel, right? He had a whole book regarding the gospel. He brings it forth to Theophilus' mind. He was probably an official who got saved and who wanted to know what really happened. And so Luke, who is the most accurate of writers in the sense of the most uh, sequential, maybe I could say it better that way, the most historical of writers, he writes it in the sequence in which it happens. He says, excellent Theophilus, I want to write to you what he did and what happened. And so the first thing he says is to believe in his gospel. And before we even talk about serving God, before we even talk about honoring God or attending unto God or be doing good things unto other people, we got to talk about the gospel first. Don't bother, I'm not even going to bother going into any other reassurances if you're not fully convinced of this cornerstone of faith first, the gospel. And he says verses in, in verses 1 and 2, he says, the first account I composed, and he says what he began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. Notice, he says, what he began with his life and ministry. And now in verses 1 and 2, he says, until he was that day he was taken up to heaven. And this speaks of his ascension. And then it says, to the apostles whom he had chosen. And so now it is the gospel, the same gospel that uh, Paul was talking about, the same gospel that Luke is talking about, the same gospel that Matthew is talking about, the same gospel that... It, that John is talking about, the same gospel that Peter is talking about. This is he appointed and assigned these apostles to be the source of what is to believe. This is so critical. Luke says it's so critical that it's not only critical for when you first get saved, it's critical for you to keep growing in the faith. He says it, and you know it in Acts chapter 2.42, he says this, and they were continually devoting themselves to what? The apostles' teaching first, and to fellowship, and to breaking of bread, and to prayer. And so what does he do? He says, you have to trust in this body of truth. You have to trust in the data about Christ, 
And you have to trust in the person of Christ. Now, what, what does he mean by that? Well, we know it talks about his life and ministry. He says here, what he began to do and to teach him. You can put all that sum of all his ministry, his, his incarnation, his, when he was born, his, his, his ministry as he was baptized in the Jordan and his healing the sick, all of that you have to take and accept. But he also talks about, and he puts a little bit more emphasis on verse 3, Jesus' death. And resurrection. Notice he says here in these in this word after his suffering, after his suffering in that phrase, that is just a, a short phrase to encapsulate all that Christ dealt with on the cross. And so he says, after the cross, he has returned to us, he has shown us by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning. The kingdom of God. Many convincing proofs. In, in, in Luke, when he is writing this, he's talking about the, the instance where Christ entered into a room with locked doors. He's talking about when, he let, when Jesus Christ was resurrected and he came into the unbelievers, which is an evidence in itself, brothers and sisters. When you're trying to, you don't have to understand this. When you're trying to create a fraud, you don't say that people disbelieved. Do you understand? In the text, the Bible is honest. There were disciples who didn't believe. And they said, and we know that, we see it from Thomas. We're going to take a look at that later. But he let them touch his wounds. He ate and drank with them. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days. Over a period of 40 days in intervals. Paul talks about this in, uh, and he explains it in more explicit terms. What? How we, how he, uh, about Christ? He gives it in explicit terms. Notice in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 5 to 8. He says here, well, let me start with verse 1. He says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, and which also you stand, by which you are saved. Notice, the gospel is how you stand firm in the faith. It is so important, brothers and sisters. When someone says, oh, you know, I do good things, but I don't believe in Jesus Christ, that he's the only way, but I do good things, and I help this, and I help the poor, and I do this. The Bible says that that doesn't make, that doesn't make an inkling of help in their salvation. Because they cannot earn salvation. It has to be a gift given by God. Notice he says, now I make... Known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which I received, and which you stand, by which you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Verse 3, I delivered to you, he's using the same kind of language, right? He does the same kind of thing that Luke does. Of first importance, what I also received. This is what centers us, Christians. This is what brings us together. This is our hope, our foundation. Here it is. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised and on the third day according to the scriptures. And here are the convincing proofs, brothers and sisters. He appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, then to the twelve. 
And after he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. And so as Luke is saying all these things, these are all these convincing proofs Paul gives us the details of what are these convincing proofs? Well, he says here, he appeared to Peter. Okay, I could, I could see that. If it was a fraud, maybe it's Peter. But it's, you know what's amazing is the first person he says is Peter. What did Peter do when Christ was arrested? He ran. He denied him. He said, I don't know this one. And what's interesting in the gospel record was the first one is the coward who turned on him. And everybody in the whole church knew it. So then people start to think, okay, why did Peter change his mind? What did Peter see? Now, if you imagine, if you're a skeptic and you're thinking about this, what did Peter see that changed him from a scared coward to a bold preacher who says, I'm going to die for this? Now, he moves on. Notice he says, then to the 12, okay, well, I could see this. Maybe there's, his friends are all together and they want, if they wanted to create a religion and fabricate a religion, perhaps you can make 12 guys say the same thing. It's pretty, it's pretty lame, but maybe. And even if you know this, if you watch any kind of cop story, what they do is they separate people and they see where their stories are different, right? That's how cops figure it out. Oh, you're lying. You're lying. But they are saying the same thing over and over again. Okay, verse 6, look. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. Now, this is hard. Some people say, oh, it was a dream. It was mass hysteria. This is difficult to do now. Now you got 500 people saying the same thing, saying, I saw Christ. Well, not saying, oh, he kind of looked like him, you know. Now you got 500 people saying the same thing. Now, this is hard, right? Most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. And now what's happening is this, okay? Paul says, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. That's a euphemism for died, okay? Fallen asleep is a euphemism for died. But he says, some of them remain until now. And what Paul is telling them is he's saying, I'm writing this book, and as I write this, there are still folks in the congregation who saw the resurrected Christ. And if you wanted to check it out, go ask them. You want to check it out. They're still with us. They're still alive. And so he's telling them over and over. Um, and then he talks about he appeared to James and then he appeared to Peter and he appeared to Paul. Now, he gives these convincing proofs to them. Turn back to Acts. Turn back to Acts. appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. 
So before we even talk about the assurances that you would have about doing his work, do you even know the gospel? Do you even believe it? Man in his rebellion sinned against God. At the garden, he has separated himself from God. There is a broken, irreparable fellowship that is, cannot be fixed by man's religion, by the good work that he does. Jesus Christ came from on high, knowing that mankind could never fix or repair this relationship, knowing that man was doomed to be condemned. He comes down, puts on flesh so that he can die. He lives a holy life. He dies a holy death. If you would trust in Christ, just trust in him. He wants you to be part of the family. If you would put your faith in him, and if you trust in him, you will be his forever. You may ask the question, why don't I want to serve him? Why don't I want to be involved in gospel ministry in the local church? Why don't I want to share the gospel? There's some answers. Perhaps you don't know how to do it. Let's teach you. Let's train you. Love to do that. Perhaps you're untrained. Let's get you trained. Or perhaps, perhaps you're unsaved. If after all is said and done, and you know the gospel, yet you have no desire to be fruitful in it, can you really say you believe it? You can't endure the hardships, the mocking, the persecution from inside your own family for the sake of the gospel if you really don't believe Christ is who he said he is and you don't believe that what Christ accomplished by his life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. Why would anyone suffer at all for something they did not believe in? Think about that. Think about it. Why would anyone suffer at all for something they did not believe in? The disciples doubted Christ. They scattered in fear. And they saw the resurrected Christ and they died for it. Each of them except John. They died for it. What makes, what did they see that made a cowardly man brave to die? You don't die for a lie. Do you understand? If you know it's a lie, you won't die for it. Right? So why would you? Why would you live for it? Many people quit their job simply because they don't believe in the company or the product. Why would frightened disciples who fled and betrayed Christ become so bold? It's the gospel. See, God is calling you this morning to believe. And this is why Luke puts it right in the beginning. These are the convincing proofs. These are the things that are self-evident. Self I'm giving you the narration of how God desires to pour it out on us. Look at this doubter. Look at John chapter 20. These convincing truths. Look at John 20. 
Some folks say, well, I'll see it if I believe it. I'll see it if I believe it. I'll believe it if I see it, I mean. I'll believe it if I see it. Look at John chapter 20. John chapter 20. This is after Christ resurrected. It was in the evening of that day, verse 19, first day of the week. And the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, peace be with you. Incredibly frightening. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. And the disciples went rejoice when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them, peace be with you as the Father has sent me. I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Notice verse 24. This is a Thomas. I'll, be, I'll believe it if I see it. This is Thomas. Okay? You got to show me. Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, We've seen the Lord. And he said, Yeah, 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 yeah. Sure you did, right? Sure you did. Unless I see his hands, the imprint of the nails, put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into the side, I will not believe. I'm not going to believe it. 26. After eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, now, you, you got to understand, Thomas is probably sitting back and saying, what, what is going on? He looks like Jesus, but uh, he could be an imposter. He could be someone else. I still don't believe it. And so Tom, he says to Thomas, I'm here, Thomas. You don't believe me, Thomas. Here's a convincing proof. I'm in your face, Thomas. See, that shows the unbelief of man, doesn't it? Folks say, well, if Christ was here, I'd believe. No, you wouldn't. You wouldn't believe. He was right in front of Thomas. Christ had to give him a mind to believe. This shows the hard heart of, of man. They don't want Christ. It's not a matter of education. It's not a matter of data. It's not a matter of historicity and narrative. Where evil, even I was sharing this gospel to a uh, uh, a professor in UCSB, I said, what did they see that made them die for the faith? These wimps who were scared and cowardice. And he looked at me and he said, I don't know what they saw, but they saw something because you don't want to believe. He said, I don't, I don't know what they saw. And the professor who studied Greek, who was teaching me, did not understand the clear text. I asked him, what did he see? What did they see? And he said, I don't know, but it was something. You're double talking, man. Christ was resurrected. And you won't give him the glory. And so Christ says this. Reach here with your finger. For Thomas, he did this. See my hands and reach here, your hand. Put it in my side and do not be believing, but be believing. 
So reading in between the lines, you know, Thomas put his hand there. He didn't even believe probably the wounds. Oh, that's, they put some kind of a ancient makeup on there. It's not real, right? So he touches it. Thomas goes, what does he say? My Lord and my God. He calls Jesus God. He knows what's happening, right? Look at verse 28. My Lord and my God. Verse 29, Jesus said to him, here it is for you. This is the age in which we live in, brothers and sisters. Those who are considering the claims of Christ. Look at this. He says, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. Where are you in this? Do you believe the gospel? God is calling you this morning to believe the gospel. And you know what? If this is a fairy tale, we have wasted our lives, brothers and sisters. If this is not reality, we have wasted our lives. If we have put everything that we have into this gospel, all of our hopes, all of our dreams, all of our desires that the gospel will be spread, if we have put everything here into Christ, the Bible says you are men most to be pitied if this isn't true. But praise the Lord it is, amen. And we have seen with the eye of faith. And Jesus is saying, say, you, you don't believe. You don't want to believe. Right? But he says, blessed are those who believe and do not see. Can you see with the eyes of faith and believe in him? So the assurance here is to first believe his gospel. That's the only way the gospel is going to go out. You will not give what you don't believe. Pretty simple, right? You will not stand for what you do not believe. Secondly, advance in his spirit. The second reassurance is his spirit, right? Advance in his spirit or progress in his spirit or go forward in his spirit, if you want to say it that way. And that's verses 4 to 5 and verse 8. Progress, step forward only in the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. First, he is the promised presence. Notice in verses 4 and 5, gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised. What did he promise? Which you heard of from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So it's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The word there, to be baptized, it's a permanent taking place, but it is a passive act. It's not something that you go seek. Understand that. There's some groups who teach you that you have to seek after being baptized of the Spirit. The Bible says you don't seek it, that it happens to you. What is this baptism? It is also the, it is the, also the indwelling. It is the marking. It is the uh, point when happens of regeneration. It is the sanctifying of that person to uh, Christ and to God, it is marking who he is. All believers receive this. It's not a select few. It is given as an Old Testament promise. If you want to write here, Ezekiel 36, here's the Old Testament promise. 
Um, no, go with me to Ezekiel 36. We have a little time. Ezekiel 36. Notice he says here. How do we progress in reaching people? You have to advance in his spirit or by his spirit. You cannot do this, Christian, by your own strength, by your own savvy. If you do, it was never of his glory. It was never of his power. In fact, if you save people by your own eloquence and your own cleverness, that's what you save them to. Mark Dever said it this way, whatever you, whatever you win people with, that's what you win them to. Does that make sense? Whatever you win them with, that's what you win them to. And so how are we going to win, folks? It's not going to be by you. It's going to be by his spirit. Notice, he says here in Ezekiel 36, here's the promise, okay? The Old Testament promise in verse 25. He says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you. You will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness. This is the new covenant that he's looking forward to. Okay? So part of it is this cleansing of the inside. So God calls us justified on the outside because we've been linked with Christ. That's what justification by faith means. But when we are linked by faith, right? In that moment, right, the reason why we have faith is because God has done a work in us that is regeneration. Notice he says here, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean, future tense. I will cleanse you, future tense. And what occurs in this regeneration? Verse 26, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit within you and I will remove the heart of stone and from your flesh give you a heart of flesh. What occurs? Verse 27, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. When God saves, here's the new covenant. In the Old Testament, he's promising through Ezekiel, this is what I will do with people when they get to Christ, when they are saved. Not only am I going to give the commandments, but I'm going to give them the ability to follow. I'm going to give them power to follow. I'm going to give them strength to do it. I'm going to give them desire. How? I'm going to change their hearts. Such that they now love Christ. Such that they now, they do not spurn Him anymore. They want Him. They know that when they come to Him, His yoke is easy and His burden is light. He's not their enemy. His, their hearts now become soft and they want to follow and his spirit dwells in them permanently such that I don't change myself from the outside in. Christ changed me from the inside out and I hate my sin and I want, I want Christ to completely cleanse me from it. But where does that come from? It comes from the promise that was promising all the way to Ezekiel. Now, Jesus continues the promise. Look at John 14. It's amazing, John 14. Jesus, well-versed in the Old Testament, he is the living word. And now he's going to repeat 
this promise of the Holy Spirit indwelling, baptizing, marking the Christian. Now he says in John chapter 14, he says, and verse 16, Philip says, show us a father. And Jesus says, have I been so long? Look at verse 8. Have I been so long with you? And you have not, you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Jesus is saying, I am God. He's looking at Philip and saying, I am God. Look at verse 16. He says, he knows that he's going to leave, but he says in verse 16, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you. Notice what he says here. Forever. Forever. Lest you misunderstand. Look at verse 17. That is the spirit of truth. He is the spirit who originates truth. He is the spirit who dispenses truth. Look at verse 17. Whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. Now watch this phrase. Watch very carefully. Okay. But you know him because he abides with you and future tense, future tense from here, will be in you. Ezekiel promised the Spirit would come. Jesus says, that's right. The Spirit's going to come. And we will, spend, we will send the Spirit, right? He's going to be another helper, another, he uses the word, just like me. He will come. And we understand this to be the Holy Spirit when he comes to indwell permanently. Common, this is commonplace for Christians. You could write down Titus 3.5. But it's not only this indwelling. So it's not just this indwelling. There's this, there's this dual facet. First, it's his presence, right? It's his presence. How do I know Jesus is with me? It's his Holy Spirit. He mediates his presence in me. But it's also an enabling power. Verse 8. You shall receive power. Look at Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses both in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria. You shall again. He talks in future tense. He's talking of certainty. Not it may happen. He says you shall. The word there of course power is where we get the word is, is the word dunamis, of course, we said many times where we get the word dynamite. But understand this, that the word means the ability to accomplish an intended end. So this is speaking of the Holy Spirit's supernatural enablement to accomplish his intended end. What is the intended end? I'm glad you asked. Right? Here's the intended end, right? And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. Again, he says, you shall, future tense certainty, be my witnesses. What is the word there for witnesses? We know it's, uh, it comes from the word martyr, right? It's, which later on became the word for martyr. Why? Because the word martyr was so tied in with their testimony. The Christians were dying under Nero. It was so tied in under testimony 
that these Christians would die for the faith. But let me tell you this. Let's break it down. He says and connects it. Look at the verse. He says, you will receive power and you shall be my witnesses. You will receive power and you shall be my witnesses. So first, we understand that the baptism is the Holy Spirit's presence, Christ's presence being mediated to us by the Holy Spirit. It is his eternal presence residing with his people. Now, secondly, we have an enabling power. And he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. One of the main ministries of the second person of the Trinity is to empower you to testify. The Holy Spirit and his enabling power is for the express purpose of testifying of the teachings, the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension, and glorious return of Jesus. This enabling power is not simply to have and to wield at your own desire and whim or to entertain. It's to bring attention to another. Some folks say, oh, I have this gift of the Holy Spirit, and you see these crazy guys like Benny Hinn doing like this, and all these people fall. That has nothing to do with God. Why? It doesn't bring glory to Christ. It's not focused on Christ. It's focused on Him. Notice he says, witnesses. In other words... Our center of ministry should not be morals by themselves. It should not be finances by themselves. It should not even be family, although blessed by itself. We are called to testify of Christ, to witness of what he has done. And the witness has been already ordained. His life, his ministry, his death, his burial, his resurrection. We are to speak of these things. In fact, when we become a ministry that veers from the centrality of Christ in all that we teach, we cease to be his witnesses. You see how clear that is. If we are a ministry that veers from the centrality of Christ, we're no longer witnesses. That's the definition of it. We should not expect his blessing. But on the other hand, if we hold to the centrality of Christ in all things, we're truly being what we we're truly being what is considered his witnesses there's an outward progression notice he says both in Jerusalem and Judea Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth notice we're to start at home and progress in outward circles to go to the farthest pocket of the earth this is precisely why we should be testifying of Christ and supporting qualified men and women who desire to testify of Jesus Christ. Because God has called us to not only do it at home, but to spread his glory out by his spirit. Now, do you ever wonder, have you ever read verse 8, and you ever wonder why such power is promised? Wow, God. I mean, uh, I guess if I have a pamphlet, I could kind of share that, but why do you... Promise yourself to help us. You got to see it that way. You promise yourself to help us because of the enormity and difficulty of the task. 
It takes 12 mostly uneducated men to reach the world. Imagine that. It's just like, hey, guys, we're going to reach the world. No internet. No YouTube. No social media. We're going to reach the world. What? You. Uh, I think I'm going to pick. What would you, who would you pick? Oh, CEO. Oh, yeah. I would pick Elon Musk. And maybe I would pick uh, Steve Jobs if he were alive. And who else would I pick? Oh, I would pick Bill Gates. Oh, and maybe, what's that guy, Hathaway? What's the guy, Hathaway? Berkshire Farms. What is this? Berkshire, what is this? What's that guy? Uh, I forget, whatever his name is. Expensive stocks, right? I'd pick all those guys. That's who are the movers and shakers. No, Jesus says, no, 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 no. That's not who I pick. I'm going to pick uh, this, these brothers over here. They're fishermen. I'm going to pick this filthy tax collector who sold himself to betray his own people. I'm going to pick these simple farmer. I'm going to pick these simple people to show my glory. And he gives his spirit because of the difficulty, the trials and the betrayals. Living in a world of sinful people, don't you just get sick? You get sick of it. I'm just sick of it. You're sick of your own sin. That's, that's one of the biggest hindrances is your own sin. I need the spirit to get past it. Amen. You need the spirit to try to stay focused when everything is vying for you, right? Just to stay focused. I need the spirit just to not be jaded. Amen. Just to not be jaded. I need the spirit just to not give up. Now, brothers and sisters, I have to speak real, okay? Pessimism. Follow? Pessimism in light of the Spirit of God. In light of verse 8. To put it bluntly, is unbelief. Are you following? Pessimism in light of verse 8 is unbelief. If you do not believe the Spirit of God can, now listen, and will work through you, you are denying Jesus' direct promise to you. See, I worded it like that because most folks get stuck there. They think the Holy Spirit can work through me. They'll say, I believe the Holy Spirit can work through me, but I don't believe he will work through me. Do you see the difference? Sometimes people stay right there. I believe he can work through me, but he's not going to work through me. Hogwash. That is unbelief. It is. Young people, if you've been sharing the gospel and you keep getting rejected and you say, well, I'm just going to quit, that's unbelief. 
fathers, if you're on the job and you're working and you're sharing the gospel and no one's responding and you say, well, they're not, no one's ever going to respond. I might as well quit. That's unbelief. Do you believe the Spirit of God takes the things of Christ and actually saves people? Jesus promised he would. You have to banish that unbelief from your mind. The enemy would love to render you useless and doubting while the Holy Spirit of truth wishes to use your lips. But you short circuit it and say, oh, they're not going to, they're not going to listen to It is the enemy's design for him to have you focus on your sin and your inadequacies rather than on Christ and his enabling spirit. Get up, man, woman, young man, young woman. Get up, for you have the Holy Spirit. Speak up. Do the good work in his name. And when you, they ask you why you did it, give them the pure and undefiled gospel. Four assurances to be a fruitful laborer in being used to build his church. First, believe in his gospel. Second, advance, go forward in his spirit. Third, surrender to his sovereignty. In the interest of time, I'll just say in verses 5 and 6, we have the verse 6, excuse me, 6 and 7, you have the believer's eager hope. He says, so when they come together, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom of Israel. They believed at that time they believed that the Messiah's spiritual rule and governmental rule was the same event. They did not realize that there were two comings of the Messiah. And you notice Jesus doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't say, "Oh no, that's not coming true at all." He just says the timing of it. Which is quite interesting. Which would lead me to believe that Christ actually believes he will rule in a literal reign on earth. He's actually saying the timing of it. And he says the Father's ordained timetable. Verse 7, he says, It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. He links it back to the enabling power of the Holy Spirit with, but, so before he reveals himself in full manifestation as reestablishing his visible rule, he desires to reveal his glory in another way. He wants to show the world how he can use weak, sinful, sometimes faithless men, women, and youth to be his witness by building the church, and then he'll come, which the Father has fixed. This is in his sovereign plan. So how do you know when your part in this endeavor of building his church is done? How do you know when you're done? I think the, I think, uh, the disciples there were asking this question, we want to know when it's done. We want to know when you're going to build your kingdom and it's done. We want it done now. How do you know you're done? Christian, here's how you know you're done. Either Christ comes back or you're dead. Right? Because Jesus, doesn't Paul say, for to me to live is what? Christ and to die is gain. So as long as I have life, as long as I have breath in my lungs, I'm going to keep preaching about Christ. Until Christ comes back or until I die. Lastly, marvel at his glory. Notice he says, 
the wonder of his ascension and the promise of his return. This is not fatalism, but this is awaiting his return. It's not for you to know time or epics. And it says after verse 9, he was lifted up while they were looking on and they gazing intently into the sky. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up for you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Two motivations here to marvel at his glory. First, you notice that this one goes into heaven and ascends, right? To reveal to him his power, to reveal to them his power. So as, we, as you look into sharing the gospel and being his witness, and now you have his spirit, you have the gospel, and now you have this viewing unto Christ, not as a weak man being killed on the cross, but as God incarnate going into the sky, into heaven. And then the angels say one more thing. It's not just that he is great in his leaving, but he will be great in his return. Marvel at his glory. Four assurances for you to cling to, to be fruitful and being useful for, his, for building his church is one. Believe in his gospel. Love it. Live it. Learn it. Advance in his spirit. You can't do anything apart from him. But know you have the spirit. And be brave, brothers and sisters. And go forth. Surrender to his sovereignty. That is, know that God has his own timetable for these things, right? And lastly, marvel at his glory. Marvel at his glory. If you don't have a, a view of Christ as marvelous as he is, as wonderful as he is, you won't be able to step out in faith. But what happened to these disciples is, they have seen the risen Savior. They've seen him go up and they said, I no longer live for myself. I will live for him. Brothers and sisters, will you do that? Will you do that? Will you be his witnesses? Will you do that? No, that's will you do that, brothers and sisters? Yes. Father in heaven, we are grateful for your spirit who gives us power and strength to reveal the glories of your son. We ask, Father, that you would lift us up. Lord, if we've, if we've been doubting your power, we pray that we would banish that unbelief. That we would look upon Christ again, beautiful, glorified. And we pray, Father, that you would also work on those hearts who have questions about the gospel. Lord, I pray you would work on their hearts. We know it's not a matter of data. It's a matter of authority. Don't want to bow. Oh, Lord, you'll have rightful claim. We pray, Father, you would help us to sing. Thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Use us for your glory. Oh, God, give us courage and boldness. 
as we go out. Help us to keep inviting and to keep loving and to keep sharing and to keep doing good works pointing to Christ. Help us to keep doing that because we have seen the wonderful Savior through the eyes of faith. In Jesus' name, amen.